Lord, we love those lyrics. And it's our desire to continue to proclaim your power and your glory. Not just today, but throughout the week. So we ask that you continue to give us insight and understanding to know what it means that you are a king, that your name is holy, and to us even greater what you have accomplished for us and promised for us. And we ask that you would do that in our investigation of the book of Numbers. In Christ's name, amen. The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Numbers. We'll be looking at verses 1 through, sorry, verses, no, more than verses, chapters 1 through 4. And there is much to discuss in these chapters. The most important thing about us really is our view of God, how we understand God to be. And most people have a concept of God, some idea of a supreme being. But many views are erroneous, and the views of Him differ significantly. Many people think of God as kind of like a genie, that He's ready to give us whatever we want if we would just ask Him. We just point, God, I want that, and we claim it in His name with the hope that He would then give it to us. Other people view God as kind of like an anxious parent who is distressed over his children's sin and feels helpless and anxious and wringing his hands if we would only return to him. He sits back helpless. Other people see Jesus kind of like a Santa Claus. God is keeping a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. And those who are nice are going to be blessed immensely, but those who are naughty, well, they'll be disciplined. Some people see him as the force, like in Star Wars. God is all-powerful, but he's also largely impersonal. And really our job is to figure out how we can tap into his power and use his power to accomplish our own ends. And it's about just figuring out the right way to ask or tap into him. Others see God as like a tyrannical killjoy. He's frustrated and, and pouting that people just don't do what he tells them to do. And so to get better control, he comes up with lists of rules out of animosity and frustration that people don't respect him like they should. And to keep us from having as little fun and enjoyment as possible. Others see God as just this great sentimental God. He's all love and affection. And for he just wants people to just not think negative thoughts, not think about sin, not think about the bad things, but rather just dwell on what is happy and joyful and to just do their best to get along. These are real ways that people see God. And it, you see this in commercials. You see this in conversations. This, you, if you were to ask people during this Christmas season, 
what they think it's about, you'll often get some sort of flavor of these erroneous views. So how does one know if their view of God is accurate? How do you know if what comes to your mind when you think of God is actually what God is like? How do you know if your perception of God has not just been one that has been given to you by your culture or by your family? How do you know you're not just guessing? How do you know if your idea of what God is like is actually what God is like? Well, God wants you to know him. In fact, that is his purpose in creating you. And it is his purpose in saving people is so that they might know him. And so he has given us his word so that we might know him as he actually is. And this truth is actually demonstrated in the opening words of Numbers. Where it says, The Lord, or Yahweh, spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month. And these very first words are profound because they demonstrate the condescension of God. God is speaking so that His people might know Him. The holy God who created the universe by speaking and is now revealing who He is. And He's speaking to a man, a creation. To these people. And God wants this people to know Him and and, and know what they must do so that He might dwell in their midst. He has redeemed them already from their slave masters in Egypt by destroying Pharaoh's armies. And He has brought them to, to Himself at Sinai and constituted them as His special people. And He wants to bless them. And He wants to um, make their lives as, as glorious and great as possible. He will multiply them. And let them know all they need to know in order for them to thrive under His leadership as their God. And the instructions that are given to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 1-4 through give us wonderful insight into who He is. Now the the instructions that are given really center around three things. The assignment of warriors of Israel and guards and servants. But within those assignments, he reveals his character and priorities in magnificent ways. And that's what I want to draw out in the passage before us. Let's look first at uh, the assignment of the warriors in chapters 1 and 2. The very first thing that God speaks to is noteworthy and perhaps surprising because what he does is he he summons all of the Israelite men to war. The first thing that he addresses in this book after the building of the tabernacle and the instructions that's given therein, he summons the Israelites to war. And actually says in verse 2 that this includes every male from 20 to 50 who are able to go to war. 
So all the men of Israel have to fight, shed blood. They're called to participate in battle. And note that this isn't a volunteer system. He's not asking for volunteers. He's telling them. And they're not going to get paid for it. There's not any extra benefits for participating in the army. They're just expected to, be, to arrive and be ready to fight. And this tells us that the Israelites are God's people now. They belong to Him. They are set apart to serve Him. And every one of them must do their part to what He calls them to do. And the only men who are exempted from this responsibility, you'll notice, are the tribe of Levi. And the chapter, chapter 1 goes on to explain that that's because their job is not going to be to fight, but rather to take care of the uh, tabernacle, both to guard the tabernacle as well as to uh, take care of, it, care of its furnishings. And this is explained in verses 50 to 53. The tabernacle, as you know, is sometimes called the tent of meeting, like it is at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, it refers to the same thing. And that's, where, that's the, the tent that God had the, the Israelites build in order for His presence to dwell within them. And it contained the menorah and the table of showbread and the Ark of the Covenant. And it's where the priests would perform their ministry on behalf of Israel. And that's what the Levites were called to take responsibility over along with the priests. So all the men have a task to either fight or to protect the tabernacle. Which brings up this question, well, what about the women? Well, the text doesn't say. But there may be a hint. Note how the tribes are listed or ordered. Remarkably, they're not actually listed according to their birth order. All the tribes were the descendants of twelve, one of the twelve of Jacob's sons. But the tribes here are not listed in birth order. They're listed according to who their mothers were. You might recall that although all were descendants of Jacob, they came from four different mothers. Genesis 25 to uh, 23 says the sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, as well as Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph, and Joseph's sons were Ephraim and Manasseh, two other tribes, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. So they're listed according to who their mothers were. The same listing occurs actually in the arrangement of the tribes in chapter 2. And it's possible that this arrangement is a subtle nod to the role of women in focusing on bearing children. But what we can be very clear about, though, in this text is the expectation for all the men, 20 and older, to be ready to fight on behalf of Israel. And the call to military service demonstrates that the king of Israel is Yahweh. Because it's kings who muster armies for battle. Their king is God. 
And God's authority is also demonstrated in his appointment of the leaders who are going to be responsible for mustering the tribes. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Notice that God tells Moses and Aaron who will lead each tribe. He doesn't ask for volunteers. He doesn't ask Moses and Aaron to select some men. He tells them who's going to lead. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. The point is that these men were God's choice. So they were truly called by God to their roles in leadership. He calls all the men to fight, and he appoints who the leaders of those tribes are going to be because he's their king. His kingly authority is also demonstrated in the order he brings. He establishes order in the camp of Israel by their tribes, but he also has them camp according to their tribes, as is seen in this next slide. These are chapter two explains what's displayed on this tribe that each of the tribes will camp around the tabernacle. And like in chapter one, they're arranged according to their mothers. So you'll notice the Merites, the Gershonites and the Kohathites and Moses and Aaron, those are all the Levites. And the Levites are broken down into three different tribes, as well as Moses and Aaron, who were also part of the tribe of Levi, but they constituted the priests. And then each of the other tribes camped around the tabernacle according to who their mothers were. But one thing is different than the listing in chapter 1. And that's the tribe who is listed first. In chapter 1 it was Reuben because he was the oldest. But in this chapter it's the tribe of Judah who's given the honor. Notice that in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Judah will lead the other tribes in their march to war. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march to war. So why this aberration? Why, why wouldn't Reuben lead? I mean, he's the oldest, right? You would expect his... his Descendants to lead the battle. Right? If we were going off to war, we, we, we probably wouldn't select you know, Ezekiel in my family or Weston in the Doblers or whoever. Right? Not that they can't hold their own, but you'd expect the oldest. Why does Judah get this honor? Well, it's because the prophecy given in, to Jacob's children in Genesis chapter 49 in just Genesis 49.8, it says this. And this is worth your looking at. Genesis 49, verse 8. Jacob blesses his children. And he says this to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, 
He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The point is that Judah will lead this charge because the king of kings will come from the tribe of Judah. The one who will destroy all of Israel's enemies. But as you know, even after the tribes march to the promised land, they in chapter 13, they don't invade the promised land. They chicken out. And so they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. But even when they are led into the promised land by Joshua, they still don't conquer all the promised land. And they certainly don't get tribute from all the nations. So, what is this speaking to? Well, it's speaking of the Messiah's arrival. But you say, when the Messiah arrived, he didn't receive tribute from the nations. He was crucified by the Gentiles. Even his own people rejected him. But all these things will happen when the Lion of Judah returns. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, where it describes the fulfillment of what was alluded to in Genesis 49. Revelation verse 19. Sorry, chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in chapters 3 through 4, the King of Kings, who has mustered these armies of Israel, gives instructions not only to the soldiers, but to those assigned to guard duty, namely the priests and the Levites. So he's assigned and muster the armies. Now he gives assignment to the guards. He begins with the instructions of the priests in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. It says, These are the names of Aaron, the anointed priest, whom he ordained to serve as priests. And notice again that God appointed them to this role. They didn't volunteer, they weren't appointed by the people. God appointed them. And this is important to highlight, not just because that's what the text emphasizes, that God appointed them, but because this is going to be drawn out later in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 16, when Korah, who is a Levite, decides that he and his followers should be priests also. 
Why should just the sons of Aaron get this honor? I'm a Levite, just like Aaron. So are my brothers. We should have the role of serving as priests too. Well, God doesn't agree. And all of those, all of his followers are swallowed up by the earth in judgment. And so this is giving a warning, making it explicit. Only those whom God has appointed are to be priests and to serve as priests. And there's an explicit warning even regarding the holiness of the priesthood in verse 4. Where it refers to Nadab and Abihu who died before the Lord because they offered up unauthorized fire. God's point is, only those who I appoint as priests can serve as priests. And even those priests can only serve as I have instructed. This is, my worship is not something that's open to creativity. And people doing it according to their own desires. You will follow my instructions. And only those who I appoint or you will die. And he says this because he's the king. He decides how he will be worshipped. He speaks to the Levites next. Although the priests were the ones who would directly serve in the tabernacle. And the high priest alone would serve in the Holy of Holies. And even that only once a year. Even though they're, the priests are the ones who serve God most directly, most of this chapter is actually devoted to the Levites. In fact, the book of Leviticus hardly at all speaks to the Levites. It's almost all about the work of the priests. So it should be called the book of the priests or something. But Numbers speaks massively to the work of the Levites in multiple places. And in this chapter, it focuses on two primary words that describe the work of the Levites. That is their responsibility to guard and to minister. Sometimes it's translated to keep and to serve. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so, to Numbers 3, chapter or verse 5. Where it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall Keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider, the word is stranger, comes near, he shall be put to death. It refers to anybody who has not been given license, who has not been sanctified to come into the tabernacle precincts. If they're not a Levite, they're not a priest, they die. And the repetition here about guarding and ministering is not because God is stuttering. He is emphasizing. He wants the Levites to know their job. And it tells us something, one, about who he is, but it also tells us something about what he's trying to direct our attention towards. 
There's an explicit allusion here to the, to the assignment that was given to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, And Yahweh took God the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, or serve in it, minister in it, same word, and to guard it. Same words. The Levites are, due to do, are to do the same thing that Adam was assigned to do in the garden. And of course, Adam failed. And what happened when Adam failed? He was kicked out. He was a stranger to the garden because now he was corrupted by sin. And God put a angel in the front of the garden with a flaming sword instructed to do what if anybody approached unauthorized? To kill him. So they are, the, the Levites are to take on this role of guarding the dwelling place of God. Because this tabernacle is the new Eden. Or the, the portable Sinai where God dwells. And God dwells there so he, and it's portable. So as the Israelites travel in the wilderness and eventually into the promised land, his presence can be with them. They can take Eden with them. But because it's a holy place, that tabernacle, that little Eden, needs to be guarded upon the pain of death. And that's the Levite's job. And God divides the Levites into three main clans. The Kohathites, Gershonites, and Merarites, based on the three sons of Levi. And the repeated refrain in chapter 3 is that their guard, it is their guard duty over the tabernacle that they are to perform. Verse 25, and the guard duty of the sons of Gershom, dot, dot, dot. Verse 30, to the Kohathites, and their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars. Verse 36, regarding Merari, the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved this. So the emphasis is they're supposed to guard these things. They're guards. But notice, however, that they're not so much protecting the tabernacle from the enemies of God. They're protecting the people from having God's wrath poured out upon them. They're there to protect the Israelites from God's holiness. Because the tabernacle actually needs no protection. As you know, the most holy part of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Where God's Shekinah glory would come down and He would speak to Moses face to face. Well, as you know, in, in, in the book of Samuel, the Ark actually gets captured by the Philistines. And it's set up in their temple of Dagon. <laughs> well, when it's there... Dagon falls to pieces, but not only that, the people start breaking out in sores and get diseased. People start dying, and so they move the ark to a different city, and those people start dying. They move to a different city. They start dying, and this is what the, the Philistines say to their leaders. The Philistines cried out. This is 1 Samuel chapter uh, 6. The, the Philistines cried out, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. <laughs> and so they send it back on this ox cart. <laughs> and a 
farmer is in his field and he sees here comes the ox and this ark on a cart. The point is the ark can take care of itself. It doesn't need to be defended. It's the people that need to be defended from it. The Levites are there to protect the Israelites from the wrath of God that will destroy them if his holiness is defiled. Notice chapter 3, verse 38. They are guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. If an unsanctified person were to transgress God's holy place, his wrath would spread upon the people of Israel. And you'll see accounts of this taking place in the book of Numbers. God would punish the entire nation for one person's transgression. And you might be thinking, well, that's not fair. And to some extent that's true because only one person is transgressing, but other people are being punished. But that's the way sin works. In fact, any time a person sins, other people bear the brunt of that sin, the destruction that that sin causes, not just that person. Your sin Always, I, w- I believe, always affects more than yourself. And you f- see effects of this in your own life, but also throughout history. World War I, arguably the worst war in modern history, was started by a rogue Serbian who assassinated Archduke Ferdinand, the Archduke of Ars- Austria. One person... Thousands upon thousands of thousands of people died. You can even say World War II was, a, was really a, just a continuation of what wasn't finished in World War I. All on account of one man's decision. A father who becomes an alcoholic destroys the livelihood of his family. It's not the children's fault. Why do they have to suffer? What about his wife? Did she deserve that? A pastor who, because of his sexual unfaithfulness, destroys the credibility of the entire church. The whole church loses its credibility on account of one person. Is that fair? Well, no, but that's the way sin works. And God wants us to realize that. Transgression doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody around us, whether we see it or not. In fact, we usually don't see how our sin affects other people. Because we choose not to. Or we just assume, well, that's just their fault. It's not true. Sin is like gangrene. It, It destroys even as it spreads. But we can't be naive. We might not see it, but our sin has already destroyed people. And it will continue to destroy people. That's what sin does. Recall the dual nature of the key verse of the book of Numbers, Numbers 14, 18, where Moses reminds God of what he said on the mountain. Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Right? God is a merciful, forgiving God, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. His point is, sin does not just affect the sinner. It affects 
successive generations, whether they like it or not. That's what sin does. It destroys. It spreads. Just think of what happened to Adam. Sarah Groves honestly portrays this reality in her song, Generations. I can taste the fruit of Eve. I'm aware of sickness, death, and disease. The results of her choices are vast. Eve was the first, but she wasn't the last. If I were honest with myself, had I been standing at that tree, my mouth and my hands would be covered with fruit, things I shouldn't know and things I shouldn't see. Remind me of this. With every decision, generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. But recognize this, God gives this instruction in order to prevent such a tragedy. God doesn't want the people to experience his wrath. So he gives the priest these instructions. If anybody comes close, kill them in order to spare the rest of Israel. And so these guards are to take their post seriously, to kill any transgressor. Be they a stranger, somebody they don't know, or even if they're a family member, kill them. And even though a life might be taken, God's not going to try the the Levite for doing his job. In fact, the Levites were given this task of guarding the tabernacles because they were the only ones to demonstrate such faithfulness that, that... after the immorality that proceeded from the golden calf incident. You recall in Exodus chapter 32, these events, beginning in verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh God of Israel. Again, these are God's instructions. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And the blessing that the Levites received for their service in Exodus 32 was the honor of being God's guardians over the tabernacle. They get the responsibility to guard the tabernacle because they were faithful and little. And he trusted they would therefore be faithful in much. And this is what's explained in chapter 3, verse 40. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me. 
I am Yahweh. Instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So what this is speaking to is the fact that in after the uh, prior to the Exodus, when God instituted Passover, He appointed that all the firstborn sons should be dedicated to Him. That's because God passed over the homes of the Israelites who had the blood of the lamb on their door frames, and he did not kill their firstborn children, their firstborn sons, but he killed all the firstborn sons of the people of Egypt. And so because he showed mercy upon the people of Israel, he said, from now on, all of your firstborn sons belong to me. And they would therefore offer up firstborn animals as a sacrifice. And they would pay a redemption price for their firstborn son. And God tells them the reason they're going to do this is to remind the Israelites of the power of God to save them from their enemies. Exodus 13, verse 13 says this. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And when the time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And you see the connection now. He's mustering the Israelites for war. And he wants them to know and remember what is going to give them victory. By a strong hand and a mighty arm, the Lord rescued them from the house of slavery. This redemption would remind them that just as God destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, he's going to destroy their present enemies. But you'll note that instead of simply listing the firstborn males that needed to be redeemed, God also has them list all the numbers of Israelites, sorry, Levites. So he says, list all the firstborn males that are mine, and then list all of the Levites, whether they're firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, and so on. And this is because God appointed the Levites to replace the firstborn of Israel. So instead of the, the firstborn just going to God, the Levites as a tribe would replace them. So let me explain. Because God spared the Israelites when he killed the firstborn in Egypt, the Israelites therefore owed God their firstborn son. But because of the faithfulness of the Levites after the golden calf incident, he will accept them as a replacement. And so instead of taking the firstborn sons of all the people, he takes one tribe of the people to himself. So therefore, he adds up all the firstborn of the Israelites and all the all the Levites. And the all the Levite males come to 22,000 people, verse 39. He adds up all the firstborn of the Israelites they come to 22,273. So they're 273 short. And so to make up for that 273, God says, okay, you can instead pay a five shekel tax. And that as a replacement for not having enough Levites to make up for all the firstborn Israelites. So five shekels times 273 then is given to the priests. 
for the priests to have in their service. You know, the five shekel tax is significant because that is approximately the cost of a slave. What a slave would cost on the open market. The New Testament equivalent of that is 30 pieces of silver. The very price that was paid by Judas when he handed over Jesus. That's the cost of our redemption. Which is what Yahweh's talking about here. As Peter says, we were ransomed from our futile ways, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So it's not just the lamb of God who takes the sins of the world that is seen in the feast of Passover. It's not only the Passover lamb that points to the work of Christ. But even this act of redemption points to the work of Christ as well. Besides guard duty, the Levites are also assigned to serve in the transportation of the articles of the tabernacle. So all the Levites are called to serve in, in war. Sorry, all the Israelites are called to serve in war. All the Levites are called to guard duty, but they're also called to service in the tabernacle. So they have two responsibilities. And chapter 4 describes in detail the service that they're to offer according to the three clans. The Kohathites, it says in chapter 4, verse 4, are responsible for the most holy things. So these are all the sacred articles in the tabernacle, like the showbread and the menorah and the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. The priests were called to cover them with sacred cloth so that they would not get touched or even looked upon by the Levites. And the Levites weren't allowed to look upon or touch the sacred articles. So the priests would have to cover them first. And then they would put them on a carrying frame. Because they can't be touched. And they would slide in poles and they would carry the poles with the carrying frame, attached to the carrying frame, so they wouldn't touch or handle any of the articles. They would just transport them. So that's the job of the Kohathites. They're given the greatest honor. Then the Gershonites, their responsibility, chapter 424, is in in serving and bearing the burdens of various portions of the tabernacle. Um, They're responsible for the curtains and the hangings and the coverings, the outer portions of the tent. The Merorites, their responsibility is all the other intricate parts of the tabernacle. It includes the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, pillars, and bases. Verse 32, the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, and all their equipment and accessories. But the text emphasizes not just what they're responsible for, but the fact that they need to take extreme care when handling these articles. And only God, only those whom God has appointed are able to handle the various articles. Notice chapter 4, verse 15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. 
but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Chapter 4.18 Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that, that, they, may not live, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in and look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. And what you've got to realize is that God is giving these warnings out of kindness. He's saying, He's giving all these instructions so that the Kohathites will not die or anybody else. So do things according to what He tells them because if they don't, they will die. He doesn't want to see that happen, but they need to follow His instructions. He wants them to recognize that His holiness is dangerous. It is dangerous. It is deadly to anyone who is not sanctified, who is not also made holy. So just like a nuclear power plant gives, has tremendous blessings through, through the power that it produces, it also, its radiation is extremely deadly for those who are not protected from it. But recognize the holy God who spoke the nucleus of atoms into existence and who holds those atoms together by the word of his power, that same God is the one who is infinitely more dangerous than the radiation that is caused by the splitting of an atom. He spoke those things in the beginning and holds them together. His holiness is far more Deadly. And the warnings given in this chapter are just regarding the items that were in the presence of God. These are just articles. A person could even look upon them without being killed. What does that tell you about the God whom they have been sanctified to serve? These are just about items. But one day, every single one of us will be exposed to the full radiance of God's holiness. And unless we're completely holy, even as He is holy, we will be consumed. Which is why... God sent His Son into the world to take on flesh, to become one of us, to perfectly fulfill the law so that through Jesus' death and resurrection, He might procure for us holiness. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteous of God. Because God can't diminish His holiness. God, that's who He is. That's His nature. He can't, just like an, a, a split atom can't just will for its radiation to be safe. God can't just will for His holiness to not destroy people. He is holy. He can't take away His holiness, but He can provide a covering. 
And the covering was the death of His Son. And anyone who recognizes their need to be protected from God's holiness because they're a sinner, anyone who trusts in the work of Christ and calls upon His name and repents from His sin can be saved. And although the articles in the tabernacle could be temporarily made holy through the blood of bulls and goats, the souls of men can only be made holy through the death of Christ. And those who reject the provision that God has offered through Christ reject their only hope of salvation from His holiness. You reject that covering, you will experience the full radiance of God's holiness in the form of His wrath for all eternity. But any, any and all who trust in Jesus' work and repent from their sins will be saved and forgiven and they will receive the same holy nature that Christ Himself has. They will be holy and be fit to stand in God's presence for all eternity. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here who has yet to trust in You, yet to repent from their sin, yet to cry out to You and embrace Your offer of forgiveness, Your offer of protection from Your holiness, we pray that You would open their eyes so they would do so now. And we also pray, Lord, that You would give us greater understanding of what it is that You have done for us in Christ. That we would no longer live like the Gentiles and unbelievers around us, but instead we would live holy lives. That we would be holy just as You are holy. Demonstrating the the miraculous work that You have accomplished in our regeneration and being born again. Lord, we want to be a holy people. Lord, and we ask You would help us to guard that holiness so that we would serve You and be more effective in advancing Your work here in Hillsboro and throughout the world. We ask these things in Christ's name.